So does anybody have any questions about meditation today? This is on the program a question and answers, answer session. So if you do have a question, feel free to bring it up. Don't be one of those people who waits till the end of the session and then comes up and says, I've got a question, because I'll be out of time. So if you have a question, you can bring it up now. หลังเจ็บอาจารย์ไม่ใช่เป็นหมอนะต้องไปหาหมอก็ดูอันดับแรกเจ็บเพราะเรานั่งผิดท่าผิดผิดหลักษณะหรือเปล่าหรือเป็
เริ่มต้นใหม่สอนตัวเองพวกเริ่มต้นใหม่ก็ไม่ได้เสียหายอะไรแล้วก็นับใหม่นับนึงใหม่กลับมาที่ลมพวกทุกวินาทีทุกขณะจิตเป็นขณะจิตใหม่เป็นเป็นหน้าที่ใหม่เป็นเวลาใหม่ของเราก็ไม่เสียอะไรไม่เสียหายอะไรแล้วก็กลับมาตั้งสติใหม่ที่มันจะเหนื่อยในการตึงจิตมันวิ่งไปโน่นก็ดึงกลับวิ่งไปโน่นก็ดึงกลับแต่เราพยายามกลับมาที่ลมทุกครั้งสุดท้ายลมก็จะชนะความรู้สึกของลมก็จะเข้ามาเด่นชัดอยู่ในใจแต่ความนึกคิดก็จะน้อยลงแล้จะมีความสุขด้วยนะมันไม่ใช่ว่าไม่มีความสุขมีมีความสุขความสบายใจเกิดขึ้นแต่เราเอาลมอย่างเดียวไม่ต้องไปตามความคิดมันไปไหนคิดเรื่องอะไรเขาเปรียบคนออสเตรเลียเปรียบเทียบเหมือนไล่จับไก่อยู่ในฟาร์มไก่ใช่ไหมมีไก่ยี่สิบตัวเราไล่กับจับยี่สิบตัวจับไม่ได้สักตัวเพราะมันวิ่งไปไม่ทันมันยุ่งมันวุ่นวายให้ไล่จับตัวเดียวดีกว่าตัวเดียวก็คือให้จับลมอย่างเดียวอย่างอื่นก็ปล่อยหมดในขณะที่นั่งสมาธิไม่ต้องไปคิดแก้ปัญหาชีวิตไม่ต้องไปคิดเรื่องงานเรื่องนี้เรื่องคนอื่นเรื่องนี้เรื่องนั้นถ้าความคิดขึ้นมาโอเครู้แล้วก็ปล่อยรู้แล้วก็ปล่อยฝึกไว้พอถึงจุดก็จะเข้าใจเออใช่ถ้าสติดีเรายึดโยกลมได้มีความสุขก็จะเริ่มมีพลังตรงนี้พลังสติจะดีกว่าพลังความฟุ้งซ่านความฟุ้งซ่านก็ต้องน้อยลงแต่ต้องฝึกเดี๋ยวพวกแปลเดี๋ยวจะแปลอังกฤษเนาะ It's just a question somebody had a, um, a back pain it's quite normal when we come to meditate Other activities in our life will show us or, or manifest during that period. So, say you hurt your back yesterday, you come to sit meditation. Maybe the first thing you notice is a back pain. So you have to use both mindfulness and wisdom with things like this. The back pain comes up. You, first of all, you might just notice: is it a pain because of the way I'm sitting, or is there an actual? Reason for it. So, if you remember, oh, yes, yesterday I hit my back or something, you know why there's the pain there. So it's not the meditation that is bringing up the pain. And you can tell yourself that you say, oh, this pain is because I hit my back yesterday. Eventually, it will pass. It might take a few days, few weeks, whatever the time period. At the moment, I've got to be patient with it because I can't get rid of it. And you teach yourself. Establish mindfulness with the feeling. Actually, send your attention of your mind. You know, close your eyes. Send your attention to that feeling of the painful feeling and learn from it. This is what we call investigation. And you'll notice that feeling is changing. Maybe you have a painful back feet pain in your back. Sometimes it's very intense. It's like oh, this is so bad. I can't sit anymore. You wait a while, maybe it disappears or it reduces. That painful feeling will be changing if you look and learn. You look, you observe that it changes. It's not always the same feeling, because feeling in its nature is it's a conditioned thing. It's coming and going, arising, ceasing. Even a pain from an injury or something in your body that's wrong, you can see it changing. 
And there'll be times when it's intense, times when it's very mild. Sometimes it's in a very small area, just one spot. Sometimes it spreads out. Sometimes it disappears. As you practice mindfulness and you investigate, you're learning about that pain. And all the time you're making the painful feeling the object of your mindfulness and your wisdom. You're cutting out the habit to just react to it with aversion and ill will. Obviously nobody likes painful feelings. That's why we use the word pain. It's pain, it's unpleasant. But it doesn't mean to say you have to let your mind be overwhelmed by a a reaction of aversion or dislike. If you're mindful, you can just know the feeling. You feel that feeling, but you let go of your aversion. And, and the reaction you have in your mind. You just know, oh, it's like this, and you let go. So you're not thinking a lot about it. When we think a lot about it, this is what we call dunha or craving. And you have craving for pleasant experiences. We want them, we want to hold on to them, we want more of them. The craving with unpleasant experiences is to get rid of them. So you have a pain, if you're not mindful, your craving arises straight away. You have the painful feeling, and then your mind says, I don't want this, get rid of this, why do I have this? We start complaining or becoming negative in our mind. That's the kind of suffering you can deal with and resolve in your practice. You don't have to suffer with the painful feeling on, on that level. The painful feeling will still be a painful feeling, you can't remove that, but the desire to get rid of it the attachment that forms, that you can deal with through your meditation. And everybody will learn that over time. That you know, Like say, when I first began meditating, I could sit for just like three minutes on the ground. So you're all much better than I was when I began. You can all sit for an hour easily, because you've done it today already. So you're doing very well. When I began, I could sit for three minutes and I'd sit and there's so much pain in my knees and my back. I had to stick cushions everywhere. I was sitting there miserable. (laughs) And I was noticing most of the suffering was not the feeling, it's what I think about the feeling. I was going, oh, why do my knees hurt? Why does my back hurt? I don't want this. That's the real suffering. The painful feeling, you know, there was a reason for that. I hadn't done meditation before, so my body wasn't used to the posture. I wasn't very supple. But I had that thought, hmm, if I can at least change the way I think about the pain, maybe it will get better. And it's true. If you become more mindful and you let go of those negative thoughts, straight away the pain becomes more bearable. And you notice... In our daily life, we can be very tolerant and put up with a lot of pain sometimes, if there's a reason. You know, when you really want something, say, I don't know, for example, say you're, you're overweight, and you say, oh, I've got to go running to lose weight. And the running is painful, it's hard work, but you're willing to do it because you want to lose weight. You want to look good. Or you're doing some work, and you're very tired, and you feel stressed and tired, you don't want to do this job, but you want the money, <laughs> so you do it. You push yourself. You know, there's painful things we, we put up with. Or you ask any of the mothers who've had a baby. <laughs> Very painful having a baby, isn't it? 
but you're willing to put up with it because there's another reason and you want to have the baby. Meditation is the same, isn't it? You meditate, your aim is to bring up mindfulness. So you have to be willing to look and learn from pain, not just run away from it. If you're always running away, well, you'll just get out and walk away and you'll never get beyond it. You'll never get clear enough in your mind to see that pain is a feeling, it's unpleasant, but it's not a person, it's not you, it's not me, mine, myself, it's not a being, it's just a feeling. Pleasant feelings are the same. They're not actually a person. They're an experience that arises according to causes and conditions. So you go to the kitchen, nice food there, you taste some nice food, you get pleasant feeling. If you didn't have the nice food, you wouldn't get the pleasant feeling. You know, there's factors and causes that lead to the pleasant feeling. Painful feeling the same. If you have no food for a day, you get hungry. You have pain in the stomach from hunger because there's no food. This is all according to causes and conditions. Feeling arises according to causes. Things change, the feeling changes. This is why you can never hold on to happy, pleasant feelings. They don't last because the conditions change. You can't keep that feeling. That's one of our sufferings as human beings. We're trying to hang on to the happiness we're feeling, but it doesn't last, and so we get disappointed. So some meditators suffer with this. They meditate and they feel really relaxed and calm, very blissful, very high, which is good. It's not wrong. But then after they finish the meditation, off they go, that feeling passes. Then the next time they meditate, they say, I want to feel good again like that. And the next time they do it, they can't get it. Well, simply speaking, the present moment is the only truth or reality we can really know. The future hasn't happened yet. I can't show you the future because it hasn't happened yet. The future is just a thought. You know, you think later today I'm going to go somewhere, do this, do that. But it's just thoughts. It's just imagination. And those thoughts are real, but they're not. They're not. You know, the ultimate or the reality of of the future because it hasn't happened yet. You know, it's only what you can think about it in the present moment. So the only way you can know. The future, as it were, is only what you think about it in the present moment. And so we suffer a lot with our thoughts about the future, don't we? Because we make plans and we have expectations, what we want to happen, what we think will happen, or when we're caught into anxiety, thinking about the worst thing that might happen. But it's just thoughts arising in the present moment about some future time which hasn't happened yet. So you need your mindfulness just to tell yourself that, oh, it hasn't happened yet, and don't worry too much. Or uh, don't build up too many expectations, maybe what you're thinking won't happen. You know, we make our plans, but it doesn't always turn out the way we want. So the way to deal with this is, you know, be mindful. If you are planning about the future, fine, but be aware this is just a thought, just a plan. It's not real yet, it hasn't happened yet. And you have to have mindfulness to be able to do that. And the same with the past. 
You know, the past has already gone, hasn't it? Yesterday it's finished. Last year is finished. We can remember it. That's one of the ways our mind works. It, it can mem- remember things. But what's happening right now is the present. And that's all you can know, isn't it? And you'll notice even memory tricks us. You, know, you remember something 10 years ago, it's probably not that accurate. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of fantasy and all kinds of you know, imagination slips into our memory. So we, we have all kinds of, we make stories about what happened in the past. And if you don't believe me, just try it with someone you know, who you say you've known someone for over 10 years. So talk about something that happened 10 years ago. And they'll say, oh, this happened and this happened and you went there and this happened and you said this. And you say, that's nothing to do, that's not like my memory. <laughs> Two people will have totally different memories because over time your memory changes. So your memory, when it arises in your mind in the present moment, it's real, it's a memory, but it is just a memory. What's happened in the past is gone. You can't change it, you can't go back. But what happens is often the memory pops up and we attach to it as me, who I am, this is me, this is my memory. So if it's a good memory, a pleasant one, it makes us happy. If it's an unpleasant one, maybe we feel very angry or upset. Just on a memory. And that shapes the way we think, our views on things, our opinions. So a lot of people suffer with, you know, trauma and feelings of guilt and sadness over things that have happened a long time ago. It comes up as a memory, but instead of just saying, this is a memory, I have to accept what's happened is finished, it's gone. They go, oh, this memory, and then they start reliving it and thinking more stressful thoughts based on the memory and create fresh suffering. Maybe after 5, 10, 20 years, you can do that. When you're mindful, the first thing you know is what is happening. Oh, it's a memory coming up. So you know, this is a memory. It's just a memory. It's just a thought or a plan about the future or a projection on the future. It's just a thought about the future. That gives you some something better, some better knowledge to help free your mind from suffering. So you're not just attaching and reacting. One of the ways we suffer is we carry a lot of, we say, mental baggage around from the past. We keep remembering things, feeling bad about the past. I wish it hadn't been like that. I wish that didn't happen. We're not seeing this. It's just, basically it's an illusion, isn't it? You're carrying a memory around and, and keep suffering over this memory where all you need to do is establish mindfulness and say, okay, what's happened has happened. I can't change it, I can't influence the past, so I must let it go. But you also can learn, you can learn from your past, you know, things went well, that can teach you something, things go badly, that teaches you something. But the past is the past, so you must let it go. The future hasn't happened, so you let that go. So what have you got left? You've got the present moment. You keep training your mind to bring your attention to the present moment. That's where you learn to really understand how to keep your mind free from suffering. You know, as soon as you lose your awareness of the present moment, you're called into daydreams, ideas, what we call mental proliferation. And it's very difficult to understand things when you're in that state. You're not fully mindful, fully aware. Doesn't mean to say when you're in the mindful in the present moment you can't think, but you have to maintain your mindfulness very carefully when you start 
thinking about something because quickly you lose your mindfulness, as we all know. And you, you follow your breath for a few moments and then you start thinking. Your, your mind is gone. It hasn't really gone anywhere. It's just taken up a different object and you've lost your awareness. And that's where suffering gets us, isn't it? You can be sitting quite peacefully on your own, watching the breath, then a thought, a negative thought, say, pops into your mind. You remember something or somebody that makes you angry, and suddenly you're angry. Where's that come from? It's just your mind has grabbed hold of another idea, another object. And without mindfulness, you've attached to it, and suddenly you start to feel an emotion. It could be love, hate, whatever, but you're, you've gone from the present moment, and you're lost in that mood. When you bring your mind back to the breath, you might still be aware of the thought, but now you're not attaching or grasping it. You're just knowing, oh, there's that negative thought. It comes, it goes. You don't have to suffer with it. This is what we call vipassana, meditation, where you're seeing the transient or the changing nature of your mental activity. So you maintain mindfulness. A thought comes, but you let it go. It just arises, ceases. Feelings come, even unpleasant you know, painful feelings. You can watch them arising and ceasing in your mind. This is a liberating experience. It frees you from constantly identifying and grasping with these things as self and getting caught up with them and suffering with them. This is a way you can free yourself from all kinds of, you know, mental suffering based on past events, memories. It can help you deal with pain and illness in the body help you deal with anxiety about the future, all kinds of mental suffering, you know, there's so many different kinds, but it helps because it's bringing back to the, the reality of the present moment. So somebody who practices mindfulness very well, they've got very, what we say, consistent mindfulness, steady mindfulness, what we call samadhi. One thing they start to notice is like all the thoughts have a certain similarity in that they all all our thoughts arise and cease you know, their mental moments so that gives them a certain equal value so everything has this characteristic it's impermanent whether it's a very beautiful thought a very good thought high thought or a very horrible thought or a very sad thought it arises it ceases you're gaining a higher knowledge when you practice mindfulness like this. It's some a better or different perspective that helps you free your mind from just identifying with everything and becoming caught up in suffering all the time. But to do that, you have to train your mind in mindfulness, bring your mind to the present moment regularly through practice. Then you're not so caught out by all your moods, all the different mental activity it doesn't catch you out, doesn't lead you on a a trip now you notice that even in the hall this morning you could see some people they're meditating on the breath they sort of get a little bit calm with the breath and then they start to drift they lose their awareness lose the mindfulness and they start to drift as you drift what happens your body drifts as well so you notice when your mind drifts maybe your body changes and if you had your hands together maybe your hands move apart Maybe your back, <laughs> that, or your head nods. The next thing is after drifting, you start to daydream, you start to become drowsy. It's like falling asleep when you fall asleep at night. Next thing you hear someone snoring. 
<laughs> someone's snoring in the middle of the day. <laughs> what is that? Oh, it's the mind has lost mindfulness of the breath. First of all, it's called into a daydream and then boom, into sleep. So if you practice more, you start following and catching that process or you can reel it back in, as it were. You, you don't let your mind go to the point where you fall asleep. As soon as you are drifting, you know, oh, I'm drifting. I must wake up, wake myself up, re-establish mindfulness. So you have to work at that. So sometimes you have to open your eyes. And if you open your eyes, you get the enlightening and you, you wake up. Sometimes you have to just take a few deep breaths. You, you re-establish your awareness in the present moment. It stops you daydreaming. There's many techniques we use, but you have to see the value of practicing mindfulness and keeping your mindfulness. So this is when we, why we, when we meditate, you, know, you sit in a hall. It's not too much happening. There's not too much noise. Not too many distractions. So you can really focus on your breath. You, when you're meditating, you close your eyes so you're not looking around at everyone else getting distracted. Close your eyes. With your ears, you have to tell your ears, you know, it's okay, I don't need to listen to all the stuff. You might hear something, but when you notice hearing arising, you just let it go. Remind yourself, oh, let it go. If you have feelings, like painful feelings, okay, you can't avoid them, but you just tell your mind, let it go, let it be. You don't need to think a lot about it. So you keep doing this, after a while your mind settles down on the breath and you feel calm and you're alert and you're with the breath. Then you can contemplate, you can wisely reflect on what experience is happening very well because your mind is clear in the present moment. You can see thoughts coming and going. You don't have to get involved with them. You just see, oh, that's a thought, it comes up. You you can think about a person or something you want to do, but it's just a thought see it, you let it go. You have a feeling in your arises into consciousness, you know it, you let it go. So your mind is, tr- is being trained like this in mindfulness and it helps, helps us. We become more steady, more calm, more peaceful in ourselves. I'll just answer, somebody wrote a question down, I'll answer this one if I can. Or the writing is not so clear. When somebody is dying, is that person, if that person is mindful, to watch in each in-breath and out-breath till the last moment, what will the result be? What will be their next birth? Or birth-linking mind state of samsara? In the teaching of dependent origination, when there is no clinging, no becoming, there's no birth. Upadana Pachayabhava. Kindly explain. That was the first question. Well, just moving on from what we were talking about just now, the way the Buddha explained how suffering arises for us as humans is that All the time we're having sense contact. You've got eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch through the body, and then the mind has thoughts and memories arising. 
So every moment there's sense contact, following from sense contact you get feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral feeling. And you also get perception. You get your the way your mind labels and remembers that particular ex- object that you are experiencing. Then at that moment, if there's no clarity, no mindfulness and wisdom, craving arises, desire, liking or disliking. When craving arises, this is a cause for clinging to arise. So you like, you know, for example, a certain kind of food, you see it, you smell it, liking arises, you cling to that. And clinging is a hardening of craving, so it becomes part of your, the conditioning process of your mind. You like a certain kind of food, say so you remember that food as something you like. Every time you see it straight away, the desire comes because of past experience. Or same with things you don't like. There's a person who annoyed you. Every time, if you're not mindful, you see that person, a little feeling of annoyance or aversion might arise. It becomes a, a habit and you start to cling to that view. That person is someone I don't like, don't want. So that's clinging. So craving gives rise to clinging. Clinging gives rise to becoming. So you experience something you don't like, craving, clinging, becoming is like that's who you are, who you identify with, who you are at that time, and it will determine all kinds of things, like what you say and what you do and the karma you make based on your becoming. So if it's, say you like a certain kind of food, for example, you like ice cream, you're someone who likes ice cream, that becomes a, your view of life. Ice cream makes me happy, I like ice cream. It becomes clinging, and then becoming is like everything starts to revolve around that. So you know every good ice cream parlor in Melbourne, maybe even overseas. (laughs) You know which tastes you like, you know who makes the best ice cream, you know everything about it, because that's who you are in terms of ice cream. That's only a small part of who we are, obviously, but this is how the process works. Becoming that you, it's what you identify with, and it will determine things like, let's go on holiday to Italy. They have really good ice cream. <laughs> so it leads on to karma, leads to birth. Maybe you'll be reborn next to an ice cream parlor next life. <laughs> this is how it works. You might say it's a solidifying of desire till it affects your whole personality, who you are, what you identify with, what you think is right and good, what is bad and wrong, the whole lot. So I'm simplifying it here, but this is how suffering arises in the sense it produces suffering in this life. You know, no ice cream today. Oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> oh, my favorite ice cream seller went out of business. Oh, it's the end of the world. <laughs> or something like that. Or, oh, they've just built a new ice cream parlor next to my house. We're so lucky. My life has just become worth living. <laughs> you know, it starts to determine how you experience the world, this craving, clinging, becoming. Then when you die, well, that conditioning process is still affecting your mind. This is what Buddhism teaches us. When you die, the body dies, but the mind carries on according to karma and this conditioning process. 
So if last life you were really into ice cream, there's a high chance this life you'll continue. Continue where you left off. If you go to heaven, you're probably in you know, a heaven of ice cream. So every, every time you want ice cream, you think of it, it's available and probably better tasting than in the earth realm that we live in. If you made a lot of bad karma, you go somewhere less satisfactory. So you ended up in a hell realm or a ghost realm. Maybe there's always the thought, when am I going to get ice cream? And you never get it. Or you're just about to get it, but you, something blocks you and you don't quite get it. That would be a realm of suffering, wouldn't it? So, craving, clinging, becoming, conditions birth. So when you die, the things that are conditioning your mind will come up again. They'll influence where the, the consciousness is reborn, whether it's reborn as a human or an animal or a ghost or in a heaven realm. So I'll, I'll make a prediction here. It's just, just, I guess, because I don't really know, but I'd say probably all of you in a last life, in a previous life, have practiced meditation before. I'd say very few of you, this is the very first time you've done it. So you've probably already been practicing in a last life somewhere, whether it was in Australia or in Asia or on some other planet, who knows. But you've probably been practicing before because that's what's brought you to be interested in it today. You've practiced before, so that's a good kind of karma. It's still caught into the conditioning process. You know, we still say meditation is a form of conditioning, but it's a good form, a useful form, because you're learning about yourself, how to bring up awareness, understand yourself better, free your mind from suffering. So many people who have experience of meditation in a past life, maybe they worked very hard last life, did a lot of meditation, this life, maybe first time they meditate, already jackpot. Sit down. <laughs> like, oh, so peaceful, so quick. And everyone else gets jealous of them. <laughs> if you're jealous, it just means last life you didn't do so much practice as them. <laughs> so the, it's the same with everything, not just meditation. You know, why are some people born, you know, really good at speaking a foreign language or playing a musical instrument? Why are some people born and they're always you know, from day one, they're really mischievous and naughty. <laughs> Whatever we've been doing last life will have a conditioning effect on this life. So nothing is lost. Like you might feel, oh, this life I've done so much hard work practicing meditation. I seem to be getting nowhere. It's so difficult. It's not true. It's conditioning you. It's helping you. But you have to have patience and accept, well, maybe meditation is not a, an easy thing. It's something we have to learn over a long period of time. But nothing will be lost. All the good efforts you put in, it's all having a good effect. Sometimes very clearly you can see the results. Sometimes it's very subtle and you might feel not really helping you, but it is. And one of the benefits of coming in contact with the Buddha's teachings is the Buddha had that insight that he could see how people's spiritual progress develops life after life after life. So it's in our best interest to keep practicing, even if it seems hopeless and your mind is all over the place. Don't give up, just keep practicing. Said, if 
you also have a text to ice cream room right here. It's probably better than analogy. It's like the boy next to ice cream part of that's an analogy, of course. If one has had a good life with one's partner, his spouse, in the next life, is it so that you might have the same spouse or same kind of spouse? It's not that deep. It depends how well you treated your spouse. Some, some, some wives get to the end of their life and they make a wish, I never want to see him again. <laughs> So if you want to have a good wife next life, you have to treat your wife this life very well. <laughs> treat her well, treat her like a princess, like a queen. And then she'll be so happy, she'll be just begging to meet you next life. <laughs> but remember, love that's still what we call sensual love, love with attachment, with clinging, leads to suffering. So with separation, there's suffering. You get to the end of your life, if you love your wife, your wife, life, wife loves you, you'll suffer if you haven't contemplated that and seen that clinging leads to a suffering. We have to accept that even the people we love, the best husband in the world, best wife in the world, whoever, best friend in the world, we must separate through death. Nothing can change that because that's nature. It's the way nature works. If you haven't contemplated this and prepared your mind for this, there'll be suffering through separation or even just the thought of separation. You're not, you're not at the end of your life yet, so you may be your wife not answering the phone for a few hours. Where is she? What's happened? <laughs> you know, just temporary separation is already suffering, isn't it? Where is he? What's happened? Something happened. End of life is going to be much worse than that. So the Buddha encouraged us to develop what we call the Brahmaviharas, Metta, Mudita, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. So this is developing a more unconditional type of love. Unconditional love is based on true goodwill for that person that you're having love for, whether it's a partner or a family member or a stranger, it doesn't matter. Unconditional love is not seeking anything in return. Unconditional love is um, comprised of patience, uh, acceptance, these kind of qualities. And when you come to the end of your life, you separate. Unconditional love is still there in the mind. The normal kind of romantic love, sensual love, is based more on clinging, attachment, even greed, we could say, or lust. That will fade because it's in its nature. Those, those kind of emotions don't last. You know, they come and they go. So you easily go into disappointment. If you love someone just based on more selfish attachment, you know, you make me feel happy, so I'll love you. That kind of love doesn't last and it leads to a lot of suffering in this very life. You're angry with your partner when they don't do what you want, when they're not acting how you like, when they don't look how you like, all that. That's sensual love. The Buddha encourages us to develop a deeper kind of unconditional love. It's metta, goodwill, and some wisdom. Then it doesn't matter if you know your, your partner has some faults and some weaknesses, because we all do, but you'll still love them. Or your partner gets older and doesn't look as good as they used to. It doesn't matter, you still love them, you love them on a more deeper level. 
And if you really love someone, what do you wish for them? You wish for them to reach Nibbāna, enlightenment. So true love is wishing your partner spiritual progress towards Nibbāna. So you'll do things for that. Your partner says, I'm going to go on a meditation retreat. You say, great, go. I want you to be enlightened quickly. <laughs> but most partners say, no, 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 stay with me. I want you to do here, be here, help me do this, do that. You know, we still got to look after the kids and cook the food and do this. <laughs> but if you really love someone, you want them to be enlightened, don't you? So you have to really look, this is another area to investigate in your meditation. You know, who do you love? Who do you attach to in your life? What do you want from them? Do you want them to be just be there for you, to be happy, make you happy? This is a more selfish kind of love. Or do you really wish them well? This person that you've shared time with or you know as a friend or a partner, do you wish them to be truly happy, to understand Dhamma, to be peaceful, mindful, progress in their practice? It's another practice in itself, just the practice of kindness, compassion. This is what the Buddha did. When he got enlightened, the first thing he did, he thought, was, who can I help? I've understood how to free my own mind from stress. Who else can I help? And at first he thought, oh, there's no one. No one's going to understand this. But over time, he realized there are a few people. So he started teaching. Once he realized people could understand what he was teaching, the first thing he thought was, family. I've got to go back, teach my family. So he went back, he taught his wife to be enlightened, taught his son to be enlightened, taught his parents to be enlightened. His own mother had died in child, or just after childbirth, so the Buddha had to go up to the heaven realm in his meditation and teach her to be enlightened there. When you, when you really have true love for someone, that's what you want for them. Unfortunately, a lot of our love is very limited. It's more of this clinging, so we become attached to the person, but it's not truly wishing their true welfare yet. You know, we have some of that in our mind, but part of it is still selfish. You know, this clinging, this pushing and pulling, and that's why we still have arguments and all kinds of stresses in, in our relationships. So from meditation, you can learn how to love people better, and be a better person yourself, help others better. Well, maybe getting married is a good way to understand the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> the Buddha said, your life is full of dukkha. You get married, is it all happiness? <laughs> I think everybody does pause, like you say, they pause, but they don't stop. And they carry on. Because it's almost like a conveyor belt or some kind of 
process that you can't resist, you know. Many people, when they're young, think, well, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? What's the point of it all? But most just carry on and say, well, you know, I'll go to uni, I'll get some qualifications anyway, I'll get a job anyway, I'll earn my money anyway, I'll get married anyway, have the kids anyway, go through the whole thing. And like you say, at the same time they might learn a lot, you can still learn as you do all these things. But it's very difficult to step back and really devote yourself to the spiritual life, but a few people do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there are those people who decide maybe from an early age, no, I'm going to just pursue the, the the spiritual life, especially if they're exposed to opportunities. So like, you know, I know monks who became novice monks at nine years old, never got married, never got a job, never went that way. They were just spent their whole life in the robes, learning to meditate, learning what the Buddha taught, and then teaching and helping others. So there are some people like that. Everybody is at a different stage in their spiritual progress. So some people go through a lot of worldly experiences first. You know, they get a job, get married, do all kinds of things. Then they turn more to the spiritual life. Other people do it hand in hand. They have family life, a job, but they still practice a spiritual practice at the same time. There's, you know, everyone has a different path. Meiji Gale, we sometimes give her book away, her biography. She, from the age of 16, she met Lumpur Man, this monk. He taught her to meditate. The very first night she meditated, she had a meditation. She sat up all night, didn't fall asleep. She attained jhana. Probably had been doing it for many lifetimes before. So the first time she meditated, 16 years old, she entered samadhi. She sat all night. She had a whole number of realizations. She could see how life is full of all kinds of ups and downs and suffering. Straight away she had this feeling of dispassion towards all the normal things people see as happiness, you know, marriage, making money, families, all that. She thought, mm, this is still bound up with suffering. It's not true happiness. 16 years old, she already had that insight. It finished off with her seeing herself, you know, she's meditating, but she saw herself getting old and dying, as if, you know, a, a, like a movie before her very eyes. As her own self, old, getting old, lying down, dying, being put in a coffin and having, they had a funeral. And she's watching this, but she's young, so she couldn't fully maybe comprehend what it all meant. So she told Ajahn Man the next day, First thing he said is, you no need to do any more meditation yet, you're too young. <laughs> but he could see she had great potential and had obviously done it before. So he said, you know, you wait a few years, you're a bit older, I'll teach you some more. So she stopped meditating. She helped her family, but her family are still thinking in the normal way. So by the time she's about 18, 19, they got her married. So she married someone she didn't love and didn't want to be with, but to keep her parents happy, she married him. All she's thinking about is, I want to meditate, I want to practice following Lumpur Man, my teacher. Her husband is just thinking, let's start a family. And they're farmers, they've got to look after the land. So it's a real conflict. Got to keep her family and husband happy, and then she's got this other part that just wants to go and meditate and become a nun. So Lumpur Man came back, a few years later, I taught her some more, and they established a nun's monastery nearby. 
So all she's thinking is, I just want to be a nun. So every year, at this time of year in July, beginning of the range retreat, Navasa, she would ask permission from her husband, can I go and become a nun this year? Every year he'd say no. He just wanted to family, wanted to do the normal thing, like every other wife. And he got really angry with her. Every year she would ask. Every year he'd say no. Eventually her brother, who lived in the next house, felt really sorry for her. Oh, she's been asking. She's got such strong faith. The husband won't let her go. So he pleaded with her husband and said, look, just let her go for three months, temporary retreat. Might make her feel better. So he got permission. So the Menchi girl went off, became a nun, and was so happy meditating, living in the monastery, even though it was very hard in those days. They had very little material support, but she was happy. Then at the end of the reign, she came back, and her mind now is just like a nun's mind. She didn't want to return to the lay life, but out of a sense of duty, she felt she had to go back. So she went back, and what she did was she kept her nun's robes on and she put her old clothes on over the top. So she wouldn't, you know, didn't act quite like a normal wife. She didn't sleep with her husband. She does all the duties, but she's acting like a nun in her mind but just trying to keep the husband priest. But he was really unhappy with this. You've changed, you're not the same as before. And he got so angry. One day he was about to beat her. He didn't, but he was about to. He's scolding her. And uh, he said, get out of the house. You know, you, you don't want to be my wife. Go off, I don't want you. So again, the brother and his family rushed over and said, look, you just go to the monastery. We'll have to talk to him and sort it out. You go. So she went and she never came back. Some people are in a situation like that, you know, the mind wants to practice the Dhamma, they're ready for it, but maybe their worldly situation is not ready yet. They have to struggle and be patient and wait. Other people are ready and the situation allows, so off they go. Other people are not ready and they're still happy with their, their worldly life. So everyone's at a different stage in their progress. There's one more question here to finish. Dear Ajahn, may the merit caused by holding these one day retreats for the benefit of the lay people be also help may also help you and the other monks to end samsara in this very life. Ah, so it's not a question, it's a a blessing. Somebody has blessed the monks. So we appreciate your kind words. We do want to end sangsara in this very life. Sangsara is the Buddha's word for the, what we say, the endless cycle of birth and death. People would ask the Buddha, they say, can you, where, you know, what, where does it all start? Who created the world? People love to ask these questions. And the Buddha said, mm, I can't see a beginning to samsara. It's so long, it's so complex, I can't see the beginning. It's just endless. And he said the motivation for him to practice was, it's just suffering, being born, getting old, sick, dying, next life, born, old, sick, dying. Life after life, sometimes as a human, sometimes we're animals, sometimes ghosts, sometimes in heaven, but always experience the same thing, birth, old age, sickness, death. It's the one common thing for every life and every every person in samsara. They're going to have to experience that. 
even if you're very rich and powerful, you still have to experience birth, aging, sickness and death. You're very famous, you're a very wonderful person. <laughs> birth, old age, sickness and death. You're very poor, you're very ordinary. doesn't matter, does it? Birth, old age, sickness and death. It's the one thing we all have in common. And the Buddha said that's really the suffering of our condition. We're, it's like a cage. Ajahn Chah said it's like a cage. Birth, old age, sickness and death. And as human beings, instead of trying to find a way out of the cage, we spend all our time trying to make the cage better. <laughs> you know, bigger houses and nicer things and travel and have all kinds of pleasant experiences. This is, but this is all just trying to make the cage a little bit better. Nobody's thinking of the way out of the cage. But the Buddhist path is finding a way out of the cage. So going beyond birth and death, reducing the suffering that you have to experience. So that person has just wished just the same as I was saying. I was saying, if you really love someone, you wish them to progress towards Nibbana. That person wished us to be progressing towards Nibbana. So that person has true love. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it, but... <laughs> you hear that partners say this, yeah, I really wish you for, to attain Nibbana next life. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe time for one more question anyone got another question uh, sorry yeah Yeah, well, we're sort of, sometimes we're tied by the, the words and the definitions. Uh, vinyana, um, the most common way it's used in Buddhism is in the five khandhas. So um, it means the sense consciousness. So we have consciousness arising when we see, we hear, we taste, we touch, we smell. And then the mind itself is conscious. So we can think, have an idea concepts, imagination, memories. That's a normal um, way of talking about consciousness. And consciousness is arising and ceasing every moment. So one moment we're thinking, then we're seeing, we're hearing. But the sense of continuity is so strong, we hardly notice the fact that it's individual moments of consciousness. There's this sense of it's just, just a stream, a flow of consciousness, and that's me. And the Buddha said that's the biggest delusion, is the sense of self that grasps consciousness as me, mine, myself, belonging to me. So if you have a moment with a moment of happiness, you say, oh, happy me. You have a kind, happy thought, pleasant thought, pleasant experience, I'm happy. You have an unpleasant thought, oh, I'm unhappy. Really what it is is consciousness of a certain kind arising and ceasing. But uh, conditioning from ignorance and attachment and desire, says, this is me, this is who I am. So we're forever grasping at consciousness. And the Buddha said consciousness is really like a conjurer's trick, a magician's trick. You know, it's there for a moment, it makes, it looks good and it kind of fools us, but it's just 
an illusion of self arising, passing away. It's just we don't see it until we've trained in mindfulness and insight. So mindfulness and insight meditation is helping us to develop the tools and the skills to see deeper that consciousness is really a conditioned thing. And what you're removing is the, the sense of self, the delusion of self. And that's what removes suffering. It's almost like you're just developing this awareness that knows things as they are, but without grasping at them. So some people then say, well, that which knows, what is that? Is that consciousness? Well, obviously you're using consciousness to free yourself from ignorance, which also comes up with consciousness. So it's kind of a bit tricky because you've only got the one mind you're working with. But the idea of Nibbāna is that it's no longer this consciousness arising with a sense of self. It's a consciousness without self. But whether you call that consciousness, or you call it Nibbāna, or you call it something else, well, that's something that many people argue about every day. (laughs) Perhaps more important is to try to develop more experience of the mind that is free from this sense of self, the empty, peaceful mind. That's giving you a taste of Nibbāna. So when you're mindful and the insight is clear that this is not me, mine, myself, this is not a person, then you're getting a taste of Nibbāna. Whether you call that consciousness or spirit or soul, well, partly it depends on how you define these terms. That's maybe another another discussion. Say it again. What does it mean to you? Suti you're talking about. One way he talked about how suffering forms is when consciousness has a landing place, somewhere to grasp, then we'll suffer. Because whatever you cling to as mine or belonging to me, if it's not mine and it's impermanent and it's not self, you'll start to suffer because it doesn't belong to you. You can't control it. You can't have it. So whether it's earth, air, fire, water, it's a thought, it's an idea, these things you can't ultimately say are a self. You can't ultimately keep and say belong to me or have or be. That insight that knows that is what frees the mind from, from attachment. So you know, it could be the four elements. You just contemplate this body. You can't control this body, keep it forever, can you? Because it gets old, it gets sick and it dies. That's one set of elements, or the elements out here, you know, we, we say this monastery, or say your, your home, you have a home, you say my home, I've got a title deed, I've got my section 32 or whatever, I bought this land. But that's just a bit of paper, the land that you live on doesn't know that, does it? It's just land, it's just elements. But your consciousness will start saying, this is mine, so you invest, your consciousness invests attachment in that, so if someone else came along with another bit of paper saying, well, it's mine, your bit of paper's wrong, you'd get very upset, wouldn't you? <laughs> Why? Because your consciousness has already landed on that land, it's fixed itself, that's mine. 
And you see that sometimes you know, people go to war over land, don't they? You say, "My, this is our land, or this border is wrong; it should be there, or this should be my land, or I want your land because it's good land." People fight; they even die over land. But land is just earth element, isn't it? But their consciousness has grasped it as something desirable, something they cling to, and we do that all the time. As we practice this, we're investigating that: where is our consciousness clinging? So it can be very coarse things like land or you know, places. It could be something very subtle like just a feeling in the mind. You could, your consciousness could say, that's me, that's who I am. So say you attain jhana, deep state of samadhi. And it's true, you've attained that. Your mind is very peaceful, very blissful. But if you're not developing insight, your mind will say, this is me, this is who I am. This refined, blissful state of consciousness is me. So even that can become a cause of suffering. And you cling on to it. But it doesn't last, does it? Even the highest states of samadhi are still what we call sankharas. They're formations, they come, they're there, and then they pass away. You're looking at where your consciousness is grasping, anywhere in the world, the material world, the mental world. And you're investigating, is it correct to grasp at these things as mine? And if you see they're impermanent, they're changing, they're conditioned things, then your mind doesn't grasp so much anymore. You know, it's not mine to grasp at. Anyway, maybe uh, enough for now. We've talked a lot. More practice. So we have... uh, till 1.45, walking meditation. So if you'd like to find some space outside or on the verandas, can walk meditation till 1.45, and then we'll be back in the hall for sitting. Think of the Buddha and do some meditation the day before. Calm your mind so when you go into the interview you feel calm and you can look them in the eye and speak very well. Good. <laughs> 